Having looked at the prima pars of the summer, we'll be moving on to the secunda pars. And Father Robert Gay, who is the prior of Oxford um, and also lecturer in moral theology and bioethics here, will be speaking on the question of what is happiness. So what I'm going to do in this lecture is to think about what St Thomas has to say about morals. And when I say the term morals, it probably conjures up all kinds of ideas in people's heads, at least I hope it does. I've met many people who don't hold any particular sophisticated theory about metaphysics or epistemology, but almost everyone I've met is willing to assert some sort of idea about what they think is right and wrong. So on that basis, it's worth thinking either now or perhaps later on or perhaps before our question and answer session on Saturday as to what kind of words or ideas come up for you if you think about morals. If we think about morals in the context of philosophy, something that's often referred to as ethics, we might think about certain philosophers that we have heard of or who have written about morals and think about what kind of system, if any, they might use to think about what the moral life is all about. When it comes to such philosophers, we are spoilt for choice. In fact, pondering on moral matters was at the heart of philosophical thinking right at the beginnings of Western thought. The ancients, in their various ways, tended to think that philosophy was about working out how one should live. And so it wasn't just simply a way of thinking, but a way of life. And so, for example, the Stoics or Plato or Aristotle, well, they had clear views about how life should be lived. Stoics such as Zeno, for example, held the need to practice asceticism in order to live an upright life. And both Plato and Aristotle gave a central place to virtues such as justice and courage in the moral life. As the years unfold, all the big names of philosophy have something to say about morals. And from their writings, we see the development of schools of thought in moral philosophy, which we might think of as loosely formed clusters of thinkers who more or less converge around some key common ideas, even if there are significant differences between them. To give you some examples, there are philosophers whose moral theories are broadly what's called deontological, that they have a rule or command-based framework for morality. Some might see the morality of Judaism as presented in the Pentateuch as an example of this, as well as, say, the system devised by Immanuel Kant, who has his method of deriving universally applicable moral norms. In both these examples, the rules are guide to what one should or should not do. There are other philosophers whose moral systems cluster around analysing the consequences of our actions, such as the system devised by Bentham or Mill, and of course, more recently, a famous uh, uh, philosopher, Peter Singer. Not surprisingly, these philosophies are known as consequentialist, and they take various forms, many of which are versions of what is known as utilitarianism. They analyse the consequences of actions in terms of the happiness they bring about. The right course of action is guided by what brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. We shouldn't forget that there are several thinkers who are more sceptical about the place of morality in society. These thinkers are many and varied, from someone 
like Hume, who thinks that all we are doing when we are stating facts about morals is to express our own sentiments about particular states of affairs, or someone like Nietzsche, for whom there are no moral facts at all, but rather just culturally derived language about human behaviour, which should be open to critique. And he goes on in his writings to do a pretty good hatchet job on moral philosophy. When we step into the theological side of morals, things are also quite diverse, even amongst Catholic thinkers. Certainly, the history of moral theology shows that at different times and in different ways, theologians have responded to the cultural, philosophical and ecclesiastical environment to bring about their own way of looking at things. If we go back to the very beginnings of Christianity, we can't fail to emphasise the influence of Judaism on Christian moral thinking. In various places, perhaps most especially in the Pauline epistles, we see the early church wrestling with the place of Jewish customs and practices within Christianity, including the place of the Jewish law. Our Lord himself gives a very significant discourse on the life of Christian discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter 5 to 7, which breaks open the understanding of the law given to Moses, bringing out the fullness of its meaning. And then the fathers of the church continue to reflect on the scriptures and the living out of the Christian life, but drawing from out of it what is useful, also from the point of view uh, not only of uh, the Christian uh, uh, moral tradition, but also uh, drawing out uh, insights using the philosophical environment of the time. And by the time we reach the medieval period, we start to find more systematic treatments of the moral life, building on the building blocks laid, the foundations laid by the fathers, who they saw as authoritative, but with further input from the scriptures and from a wider range of philosophers. We might say that the medievals were the first to look in great detail at what human action is really all about and how the various faculties of the human person are engaged when we act. But as we enter the early modern period, moral theology takes a turn towards looking in greater detail at individual human actions and how they might be judged by conscience. In this sense, we might say moral theology becomes very engaged with oppressing questions about what is right and wrong, how God's law is to be applied in specific, concrete human actions which are not described in any detail in the scriptures. And so on a positive note, we can see that the discipline is developing at this time into a very useful one with clear pastoral application in helping people to understand the way they should act in their increasingly complicated world. In this period, we see books dedicated solely to moral theology known as manuals, which look at different aspects of the moral life. They were designed to assist in the training of seminarians and the ongoing formation of clergy as confessors. Perhaps if we are to be critical, in a negative way we might also say that moral theology became somewhat reduced very often to a list of sins and lacked a sense of the context and purpose of the moral life. Surely there's more to the moral life, we might think, than naming and avoiding sins. The period of the manuals continued really for a long time, right through until the Second Vatican Council, at which 
and after which we saw a desire to renew thinking about the moral life. In particular, a desire to reconnect with a biblical vision of morality and to reconnect with a broader vision of how we should view the moral life. Just as with philosophy, we might think that in the 20th century there have certainly been characters within the subject who have sought to be iconoclasts of the traditional Catholic moral beliefs, especially as regards hot-button moral issues. Their input, however, to be fair, has been much more than simply a bid to go with the times, but is rather the fruit of the thinning out of the vision of the moral life that had been in progress since the early modern period. Others, however, have fought for that more meaningful renewal of the discipline. In this regard, one of the most important theologians in the last 50 years has been Pope St. John Paul II. It was he who had the interest, the training and the vision to set moral theology on a more satisfying and balanced course during his pontificate. This shows not only his keen interest in certain moral questions of our time, but also it shows in his attempts to represent a broader moral vision based on scripture and the tradition. Other important in characters such as the Dominican Father Serves Pinkers and those who, taught, who were taught and inspired by him have started to help make moral theology a subject which has clearly taken a turn for the better, at least in my opinion. If this is so, if the modern thinkers have started to turn in the right kind of direction, at least as the, the vision set out by Pope St. John Paul II is concerned, we might be somewhat puzzled as to what St. Thomas has to offer us as a guide to moral theology. If we want to cut a long story relatively short and give a relatively simple answer, what we can say is that although St. Thomas was writing almost 800 years ago, his method and his sources are very much in line with the kind of approach that leads to a sound and holistic view of the moral life. His vision is strongly rooted in God's word in the scriptures, which are a constant source and a constant inspiration. His vision is also strongly rooted in the church fathers and in their reflection on the life of the Christian disciple. And he takes some of the greats of the church theologians such as St. Augustine as his guide, as well as making great use of some of the greatest philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle to bring fresh rigour and insight, and all of this at the service of the Gospel. I mentioned at the very beginning that we should wonder what kind of words might come up for us when we think about morals. And that's very important because thinking about what immediately comes to mind gives us key insights into how we conceive ourselves of the moral life. So within the Christian context, our context, what are those words? Perhaps we think of words like law, words like conscience, words like sin, or even perhaps words like faith or hope or love. Very often, it's the more negative words, I would think, that might dominate our thinking. So on a day-to-day -day basis, when we're thinking about morality, sin, which is obviously ever-present to us, 
can dominate our vision of the moral life. But surely that's only one component that we need to consider in a moral system. What about when things go right? Is there not more that can be said? St. Thomas can help us a great deal when it comes to articulating an overall vision for the moral life. His moral treatise forms the second part, the secunda pars of his Summa Theologiae. And that part is in turn divided into the first part of the second part, the prima secundae, and the second part of the second part, the secunda secundae. At the very beginning of the prima secundae, he considers the end, what we might want to call the purpose of human life. What is it that human beings are striving for? And he thinks that in order to answer this question, a distinction must first be made. He thinks that there are certain actions which human beings do, which he calls the acts of a human being, which are not based on choice or reflection. They are not deliberate. These are things like scratching our nose or twitching or tapping the table and so on. There are, however, other acts which we perform which are indeed deliberate. They involve some measure of reflection and choice. So we might pick out some examples, such as praying or attending this lecture or helping someone to cross the road. All of these are what St. Thomas calls human acts. And these are the kind of acts that we evaluate in a moral way. They're the kind of things that are proper to us as human beings, the kind of things that other creatures can't do that we can. That's why only human acts are properly speaking moral acts and therefore worthy of praise or blame. Admittedly, we use a construct of that kind to describe the actions of, say, dogs or cats, but this is only because we are trying to impose our own standards of convenience and behaviour onto those animals. The performance of human acts involves the two highest faculties of our souls, which we call the intellect and the will, which work together to deliberate what we will choose to do and to put that choice into practice. St. Thomas is clear then that because of the operation of these two faculties of the soul, we are masters of our own actions. We have the ability to think about, to choose and to put into practice things which shape our lives in particular directions. Unless some external force interferes, such as a person or some sort of natural or physical phenomenon, we can go about living the kind of life that we choose to live bearing in mind, of course, certain natural, physical, psychological limitations. And that means that as human beings, the horizons of our lives are actually very broad. Despite the fact that our horizons are indeed broad, St. Thomas thinks that ultimately human beings are all in search of something. By that I mean that there is one overarching purpose that guides all our other actions as human beings. And if we want to work out what that purpose is, it's worth asking a series of questions. For example, 
I can get to something of a person's purpose for acting by asking the question, what are you doing? And then to follow it up immediately with a question, why? And then to ask that question, why, over and over again. And each time I ask that question, why, I'm looking for a more profound answer to the question. Right, so let's take an example. I meet one of you walking down the street and from a socially safe distance, I ask you the question, what are you doing? Your reply to me is something along the lines of, I'm walking to Jericho, which is an area of Oxford not far away from this priory. Then I ask you why you're walking to Jericho. And you might reply that you're going to buy a bottle of wine. That's, that's the immediate purpose for what you're doing. Then I ask you why you're buying the bottle of wine and you might say to take it to a friend. I can ask why again and you might answer that it's because you wish to help the friend celebrate that, um, his or her birthday. And as I keep asking those questions other than annoying you, I'm getting closer and closer to some overarching purpose for your actions. Something to do perhaps with the role of friendship and then perhaps getting to the heart of something that is at the very heart of the drive of purpose in your life. And in the first question of the Prima Secunde, St Thomas spells out clearly that the driving force for our human actions as human beings is the search for fulfilment, the search for and acquisition of happiness. This is, he says, following St Augustine, the thing that all people are searching for. We all want to be happy, and it is written into our nature to seek this happiness. Now at this point, it's very important for us to take a pause for a moment and just allow what St Thomas is saying to sink in. It would be very easy for the conclusion that everyone is looking for happiness to be taken for granted as something familiar. We have heard something about it already when we looked briefly at the thought of some of the moral philosophers we talked about earlier. Perhaps, though, happiness seems something superficial or something too elusive or something deeper and more complicated than they outlined. And we'll come back to that in a second. But for now, the most important thing I want you to realise and the most important thing to frame our understanding of the moral life, which belongs to St Thomas's thought and belongs to the wider Christian tradition, is that the moral life is the happy life. Fundamentally, when we're talking about morality from a moral theological point of view, we are talking about the human search for fulfilment and happiness. And that may come as a bit of, of a surprise to many people. It was certainly a surprise for me the first time I encountered it. There is something you see very different about conceiving of the moral life in these terms. Because we're not saying first and foremost that it's about sin or about law or about conscience or anything like that at all. Of course, we must have an understanding of all those different terms in order to understand uh, Christian morality. 
but they are part of what moral theology is about, not what it is about. It is fundamental to Christian thought and to the way that we should view our own Christian lives, that God has created us as creatures who search for happiness and fulfilment. God wants us to be happy. Let me say that again. God wants us to be happy. And so the moral life for us is our journey into that fulfilment, into that happiness. Of course, we couldn't leave it there. We shouldn't leave it there. Unfortunately for us, St. Thomas doesn't. We are still, if you can bear this in mind, only on question one of 114 questions of the Prima Secunde. Never mind the Secunda Secunde. We should, I think, quite legitimately have many questions about what we might think of as happiness, what St. Thomas thinks of as happiness. For example, we can think of happiness purely in emotional terms as a kind of feeling of el- or elation that we experience when things go well. So we might associate happiness purely with pleasure, as indeed some utilitarians such as Jeremy Bentham did. But at the same time, our own experience is that feelings come and go, sometimes in just fractions of a second. Feelings, emotions, seem like, um, seem like things which are too transient, surely, to base our entire human striving on. If we base ourselves in our moral system on happiness, are we just being hedonistic? Well, perhaps not. After all, we can see the relentless pursuit of emotional pleasure at the heart of behaviours which lead, say, to addiction and the destruction of people's lives. So happiness is not just about emotions and clearly needs unpacking. As St Thomas works away at this notion of happiness, he pays attention to the kind of things that might be candidates for our ultimate happiness. First of all, he considers wealth, which he describes as either natural wealth or artificial wealth. By natural wealth, he means an abundance of things such as food, drink, clothing or houses and so on. And by artificial wealth, he means things that are indicators of wealth, means of exchange that are, as it were, used uh, as a way of uh, carrying out transactions, things such as money. And he thinks that natural wealth cannot be our ultimate happiness because each kind of natural wealth is used in some sort of way to support us. Food is not an end in of itself, but rather is for the nourishment of our bodily life. Houses are for shelter and so on. They are all means to other ends. Likewise, money. It's only of use as an exchange to get us the things necessary for life. All good things, though, we might say, in fact, we should say. And furthermore, we should say that the scriptures also contain warnings about wealth. Certainly, an inordinate amount of money is, also, is always seen in a negative way. And we also see reminders in terms of food and drink when taken to excess. And yet, we also need to be reminded for our own moral good time and again that our happiness doesn't lie in these things at all. It doesn't lie in wealth 
It doesn't lie in the abundance of things. But temptation to pursue wealth and to pursue these kind of goods as an end in and of themselves is very powerful and ever-present. St. Thomas also looks at honours, esteem attributed to us by others, and also things like fame, glory, and even power. All of these things are attributed to us or are given to us by others, whether as a recognition of some excellence we have, or simply by being well-known and being praised for something that we have done. Again, these things sound familiar, because they might refer to something that we might really want. After all, would we actually want to be a nobody? Surely it does us good, does it not, to be recognised for some ability, praised for what we do well, and so on. And of course, in a limited way, this is true. Except that, as with money, we can over-invest in these things, make them more important than they should be. And St. Thomas thinks, amongst other things, that these particular things, like such as power, fame and glory, are subject to fickle attitudes. We might be honoured or famous or powerful one minute, but not be given recognition or have our power taken away the next. Surely our ultimate happiness must lie in something more secure. St. Thomas next examines what he calls bodily goods and pleasure, Things such as health, our emotional life, and the like. Of course, bodily goods are extremely important, as he acknowledges. We all know mu- how much our lives are reduced by sickness and by ill health. And our ability to be happy and fulfilled is seriously reduced when health is taken away. It can stop us from participation in many of the things that we value so much. And if we come to pleasure itself, a lack of pleasure can leave things more than a little dull and grey. But St Thomas is clear in his answer that although these goods are important in their proper place and are part of authentic human flourishing and happiness, there is a higher good, which is the good of the soul, and that far surpasses the good of the body. As St Thomas works through the other candidates for our ultimate happiness and rejects them, His attention goes above and beyond the created order, because anything and everything that is in creation is finite and subject to change and decay, and is simply not good enough to be the object of our ultimate happiness. It's clear that as human beings, although we are unmistakably bodily creatures living in a physical world in space and time, Our horizons extend above and beyond these things. In the eighth article of the third question of the Prima Secunde, St Thomas makes it clear that our ultimate happiness consists in the vision of God. We cannot, he says, be truly, ultimately happy and fulfilled as long as we have something to seek after. In this life, although we get glimpses of that fulfilment, It can only be complete through union with God in heaven. If we take all this together, we have some important insights which have the power to completely transform the way we think about the moral life. Knowing that God wants us to be happy, that, as I've already mentioned, is a big one. It's a life-changing, paradigm-shifting thing 
if we take it seriously, and we must. The second thing is that we must become aware that, although we are wired to search for God, our gaze, our attraction is often very clearly drawn to other, more tangible goods, which we can all too easily make our goal and invest in them as things that will bring us the ultimate happiness. And in doing this, we are expecting too much of those goods and not expecting enough of ourselves. When it comes to our happiness and fulfillment, we need to think big and think beyond the created order and raise our eyes to God himself. We also need to think of the moral life as a journey punctuated by our deliberate choices and actions. And think of this journey as one which has its end, its resting place in God himself in the next life. The moral life is a journey back to God, back to the one who created us, back to the one who sustains us. So having described our goal, our ultimate end as the union with God in heaven, St. Thomas turns his mind to a detailed analysis of human action, of how the intellect and the will work in the human act. For example, the role of choice and things like that. He examines also what has often been called, and certainly called by the catechism, as the sources of the morality of the human act. So he's examining how object, intention and circumstances can be evaluated to come to a view of an act as good or evil. He also examines the passions of the souls, soul, the anatomy of feelings and also their morality. And then he goes on to look how human acts form what he calls habits, which, an example of which would be virtues, both as acquired through human action, as infused also by grace. He looks at the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the Beatitudes, which enable us to respond to divine prompting and enable that journey towards our heavenly goal. He also describes the role of different types of law that come to us as natural and divine gifts to shape and direct our actions towards natural and supernatural goals. Finally, of course, and very importantly, he speaks of grace, of God's help which enables us to do good and makes the naturally impossible goal of heaven supernaturally possible for us by his gift. All this is on the front foot, as it were, the positive stuff of moral theology which fills out the detail of how we reach that goal of the vision of God in heaven. What I've mentioned very briefly in passing just there is the material of about three separate courses in the Blackfriars Studium, the stuff of the whole of the Prima Secunde. But all of that, I think, is secondary to our understanding of what is set out, first of all, in the five relatively short questions at the very beginning of St. Thomas's Moral Treatise. The history of moral theology relates that we have increasingly lost touch with a sense of what the moral life is all about. If we can take the time with St. Thomas as our help and guide to reconnect with that sense of what the moral life is all about, it will help the way we think about morals and help the way we live our Christian lives. 
So if you want to read any more about this, there are several books that I would recommend uh, for this purpose. If you live in the United States, there's a book called Both a Servant and Free, A Primer in Fundamental Moral Theology by Father Brian Mullady of the Western Province, which I think is only available in the States, but is a very good and accessible introduction according to that pattern of St. Thomas, but filled also with the scripture and the tradition references that one would expect from a renewed moral theology. There is also this uh, very good book, which is available not just uh, in America, but also here in the UK, The Christian Moral Life, Directions for the Journey to Happiness by John Rozier. And I mentioned uh, Father Surveys Pinkers at the very beginning, who's at the heart of the beginnings of that Thomistic moral renewal. And he, he has a book called The Sources of Christian Ethics, which outlines that historical journey through the way that moral theology is done and various uh, different aspects of fundamental morals in the Pinker's Reader, uh, which is a collection of his papers. And finally, uh, there are many books by Ralph McInerney about human action, which you may find useful in terms of guiding you through understanding uh, not just the things on happiness that I spoke about, but some of those key aspects of the uh, anatomy of the human act, and Ethica Thomistica, perhaps, being the most accessible of those.